Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery. And that is why the Machinery Digest exists. A no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello my friends and welcome to Idle Chatter. I'm Ray Bohax, your humble host coming to you from Catswamp Road in Hackettstown, New Jersey. And as you know, this podcast show is part of the Farm Machinery Digest. And it is your source for all things farm machinery and, uh, you know, cars, trucks, whatever. They're all on the farm, right? And I, uh, the other day I saw a guy had a bumper sticker. I was getting an, uh, getting onto I-80, and he had a bumper sticker that said, "It's hard to be humble when you have a border collie." I used to have a border collie mix named Sparky, but he was uh, quite large. He was 93 pounds, and he used to go actually into the cornfield and pick his own corn. But the, you know, it's hard not to be humble when you live on Cat Swamp Road. So hopefully the sound of my voice is finding things going well for you and winter is hopefully breaking in some parts of the country. I can't say that that is happening here. Uh, We still have a lot of snow on the ground and I'm getting anxious to get into the field and pull my soil samples and get them out to uh, the lab. I happen to use Midwest Labs in Omaha and uh, then I uh, send it over to AgroLiquid and they make up my uh, my fertilizer for me. And so I usually have a mixture of 11 or 12 of their different products in my 2x2, two two, and then two or three of their products broadcast through the sp- uh, sprayer. I was going to say through the spreader, through the sprayer, along with some N. So uh, hoping to get into the field soon. I don't know when, but I'm looking at the clock. I'm looking at the clock, looking at the calendar, looking at the snow, and they are diametrically opposed. So that is, uh, I'm sure it's the same situation all over. But what today's show is going to be about is a subject that I have touched on briefly in other episodes. So if you heard some of this before, please know it's not just repetition of something but I'm going to need to bring the whole subject together. And what it is going, what I'm going to talk about today with you is the stress that is found or residual stress that is found in metals and anything that has metal that you look at is going to have some sort of stress in it and I want to I go into this and this is basically like an FYI and I think that so many times in life if you have an understanding of a concept and even if it's only a cursory understanding but a familiarity with it you don't need to be an expert on it 
and uh, that makes things uh, so much easier for you to work with and that little bit of understanding that exposure to it kind of puts the pieces of the puzzle together in life so uh, and that's what this is all about it's making you a successful farmer and successful in the sense that your machinery and your equipment is reliable so you could do your job get out into the field or take care of your livestock or whatever you have we have people with vineyards listening so and other things we actually have a rice farmer in japan so i guess the gentleman is highly educated and can understand english but the thing is that lots of times in life you don't need to have a phd in it and uh and you just need to have an understanding and that's what we're going to discuss today with residual uh metal residual stress that is harbored in metals but i need to start with a little story and I always start with a story, but this one uh, is not going to be off on a tangent like many times that I am. But it's going to be the segue into this. As most of you know, if not, you'll know it now, I used to build race engines and predominantly drag race engines. And that's why I got the moniker, the Hot Rod Farmer. And there's a lot of farmers out there that are hot rodders, and that falls into every type of category, whether it's uh, you know, drag cars, circle track, dirt car, tractor pulling, snowmobiles, whatever, we're all hot rodders. There's a slightly different uh, genre, I will say, using a fancy word, right? But I used to go to a show every year called the PRI show, Performance Racing Industries. And as an aside to this, that anybody that is truly a hot rod farmer, you should look into attending that show. I believe it is now in Indianapolis. It's akin to Commodity Classic, so it's 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 got no fluff. It's all if it doesn't make a uh, an end, a car go faster or a vehicle uh, stop better, turn better, machinery, engine building machinery. It's a great, great, great show. Even though I have not been there for a few years, it uh, just runs into a scheduling difficulty with my life in agriculture and agricultural media. But anyway, uh, great show. It's called Performance Racing Industries. You could Google it and look it up. But so I used to go there every year and a lot like a farm trade show and I'll just reference Commodity Classic as a common denominator since I was there the other week or two ago. But you have your main exhibitors and they have all the big fancy floor space and what have you and they got a lot of eye candy there and oohs and ahs. And then you have your aisles with the smaller exhibitors which have tables basically side to side. Almost like a county fair, right? And then often the, the the most interesting exhibitors or the most interesting products and or cutting edge technology is not in the big boots it's in these little boots and so you walk up and down and you see these boots and I walked by one and there were two gentlemen standing there and they looked like uh, they looked like engineers this was about oh maybe 20 25 years ago so uh, they had their little pocket protectors and they had uh, a little, they had a machine there which they ended up calling a console and it was a control unit. They had this little heavy, st- heavy steel table with holes drilled in it and it had metal legs and it was sitting on a piece, on, on a rubber mat. Almost like a heavy duty version of like a, a cow mat that you'd have in a dairy barn for a cow to lay on. And, and they were, and there was a cylinder head I believe or an engine block on it and this machine was buzzing so I started to talk to them and what it was called was Metalax M-E-T-A hyphen L-A-X so Metalax 
And what they explained to me is that it was used, or it is used, not was, because it still exists, it is used to remove residual thermal stress from any metal. And even though I built engines and played around with a little fabrication, and I'm not a fabricator to the level that most of you guys are, is that I really didn't understand the I, I knew nothing of the concept of stress in metals. I uh, I've heard the terms, the term from being in school of uh, thermal stress, mechanical stress, but it was one of those things that you learned and you just uh, sadly kind of forgot about it if you didn't apply it every day in your walk of life. And I didn't understand why this engine block or cylinder had I forgot which it was was on there and then they gave me a quick overview of of stress and how it impacts everything and I uh, grabbed the brochure and I did some studying on it and ultimately a few months later about six or eight months later I ended up going to their headquarters in Michigan and I told them I wanted to take a training class first before I decided to invest in the equipment and I took their training class and I invested in a metal axe machine to stress relieve the engine parts for my race engines. And uh, I got a wonderful education from them. And then after that, I basically studied stress inside metals uh, on my own. But as an aside also to this, the machine I bought was a pre-owned one, metal axe. It is called, and it was owned by the DuPont Corporation in Wilmington, Delaware, and they had used it to stress relieve a piece, a component that DuPont made to go onto the Galileo space probe. So my claim to fame has been since then that I had the actual uh, Bonal Technologies, is the name of the company, Bonal Technologies, B-O-N-A-L Technologies, Metalax. And uh, that was that actually stress relieved part of the Galileo space probe. So that was a uh, you know, little claim to fame for this uh, dry land farmer from uh, Cat Swamp Road. And I was very excited about that. And what it, why DuPont had the unit, why they leased the machine, short term lease, was that NASA had required in their specification that the unit. Of that they needed to do what is called subharmonic vibrational stress relief using the metal axe machine from Bonal Technologies. So that's how I got involved in this. So now I am going to give you a quick course on residual stress in metals and I am going to uh, hopefully, God willing, bring it together in a common sense way, not trying to make you into a metallurgical engineer, but to have you be able to look at something. And if there is a failure, whenever a piece of metal is harboring a stress, and specifically a thermal stress, uh, there will be a couple of telltale signs. It will either crack, distort, or do both, uh, crack, distort, or fail prematurely. So those are the three signs of a residual thermal stress. And you may say to yourself, geez, you know, for let's say, arguably, you have a, um, a downforce spring spring on your planter, and you, know, you, 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 you stop to fill a planter back up, and you go, son of a gun, the one spring broke. I didn't hit any rock. 
I didn't hit a rock. I didn't do anything. Why did that? It wasn't overly stressed. The, the, the lever was in the first notch. Why did the spring break? Historically, when you have an unexplained failure in a piece of metal, or the, the item is made of metal, that it is usually because it is harboring a residual thermal stress, a hidden stress in there that you did not know about. All right? And, uh, you know, the same thing happens with engine components. And you may say, well, geez, why did this break? And, uh, or why did this fail? Or why did this uh, distort to such an extent uh, over time when it, the, other, the other part that is similar to it or its twin on an engine or on a transmission or on a plant or row unit, what have you, did not have that failure? You know, the thing is that within the engineering community, we have what is called failure analysis, and I try to get my audience to think that way. Now, sometimes things just break, and sometimes they just wear out, but there's a difference between something wearing out and something failing, and if you look at a human being or look at an animal, something that is living, is if years ago when an older person passed away the doctor would put on a death certificate died of old age and basically in essence that was akin to like an old car an old engine you say it wore out this happened and then sadly if you have a younger person that passes away then i know in most states in new jersey even if you were under doctor's care you have to do an autopsy to see why the person died because normally a 25 year old or 35 or 45 year old person does not just die that there's some obviously some cause for it they're not dying of old age being worn out and we have to look at things in our machinery the same way is that most things don't just die all right and if they die we have to we have to look to evoke some sort of what i call failure analysis and i and i did a show on this a while back and it is in the archives and you could look it up and uh, listen to it because I think it'll bring some value to you. So in essence, when something fails or something breaks prematurely, and I don't care whether it's on your tractor, your planter, your compressor in the shop, what have you, is that it's giving you a sign that there's something wrong and that's why it failed. And we need to not just go along that path and say, okay, it broke, whatever things, you know, whatever, go to town and get a new one to put it on there. And uh, you know, that specifically happens with pumps, is that if you have a premature pump failure and you need to take that pump apart and look to see if cavitation destroyed that pump. So if there's pieces of metal missing in there or uh, it's very pockmarked, whatever you, then that pump is cavitating and the new pump is going to fail prematurely also and you need to take care of that cavitation. So the message that I'm bringing to you here is that we need to establish failure analysis to a certain level with anything that we do in our farm. And you basically do that in a field. If you're going going into your field and you're looking at your crop, you're doing, and the crop doesn't look healthy or you're, you're getting some yellowing of the leaves or, or what have you, whatever the particular uh, sign of it is, that you do a failure analysis. In that particular instance, it may be a, uh, a tissue sample, it may be a soil test, it may be what have you. You don't just throw your hands up and go, all right, I guess the crop didn't grow, or the crop is dying, and uh, that's the way life is, say la vie, and, and go out and have a cup of coffee. So what has, once you get involved with understanding stresses in metals, is that the picture will become a lot clearer. It's not going to stop the failure 
but it will explain to you why that failure most likely happened and that's very important because if you could understand why that failure happened you could hopefully avoid it happening again and or take a corrective action so that you don't experience that failure so uh, it's important to understand and some things we know are out of control so in essence what we need to take take as fact is that anything that has that is a metal in the metal family aluminum what have you I'm going to use the word metal for, for simplicity's sake is going to harbor stresses now I know that probably almost everyone that is listening to this show right now is an excellent welder and it's hard for you to run a any a farm or agricultural operation of any magnitude without doing some welding and so we've all had welds that failed we've all had welds that didn't that burned through we all had welds that didn't penetrate properly and sometimes it is because of the metal sometimes it's because we may have the wrong we're welding with the wrong material but a lot of times it's because of stress so now that i established this is this is like the beginning of the sermon right now i'll get into the sermon so you're in church on sunday and the uh the past is going for 16 minutes and you didn't get to the sermon yet so uh but this is all going to come and tie together so now succinctly and this is very simple and you don't need to uh, overthink it is that there's two types of stress that could be found in metal one is called a mechanical stress and the other one is called a thermal stress a mechanical stress is created by the piece of metal being formed having its shape changed through a press through bending uh through die through die casting what have you so it's it's physically being forced to take on a different shape and a different dimension so even if you take a uh, a piece of steel and they were putting it through rollers to try to make it flatter or thinner right so like to make like sheet metal is that that's inducing what is called a mechanical stress so in simplistic terms the mechanical stress think of it like a piece of wood and you're building a boat and you're going to try take and you're going to form this wood and create create an arc in it so you could make the bow of the boat and that is a mechanical stress so you're reshaping this material through force into something that it was not originally mechanical stress the other stress is called a thermal stress and what a thermal stress is by first heating the metal and then having an uncontrolled cool down rate and if we think of a racehorse where we think of a race car but we'll think of a racehorse it's probably a, a more visual uh representation of this they have the horse and the horse runs the race and then after the check of check and flag and the race is over the jockey does not stop the horse immediately the jockey slowly slowly slows the horse down and then he ends up walking very nicely into the paddock 
all right on a uh, on a race engine you would do the same thing you wouldn't come to the end of the track or whatever and just shut it right off you would let it idle for a minute or so and anybody who has a generator set like a backup generator do the same thing they call it a cool down but you let everything come and stabilize from being on a high load to a no load or idling condition so what happens with a thermal stress is that let's say that you are welding on this piece of metal so the metal went from ambient temperature to now extremely high temperature of the welding regardless of what type of welding it is so extremely high temperature of the welding and let's say you're doing you you're mig welding and now you're taking uh you're taking the gun and you're 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 welding and you're pushing the puddle and you're moving moving the um the welding wire down the we'll call it the workpiece and as you induce that heat and now push that puddle away and move that arc away is that the the area you just welded is obviously extremely hot compared to ambient but the heat source the arc is now being moved away and then what happens is that it actually air quenches in theory as you move and you push that puddle away you're air quenching the previous work spot the work site and that is what is called an uncontrolled cooldown rate now what happens with an uncontrolled cooldown rate is the you cannot see this with your naked eye all right the molecules inside that metal are all moving around and what they will basically do during an uncontrolled cooldown rate, the mo- the molecular structure will no longer be even. If you were to look at it under a microscope, then you would see that it's denser in one area and less dense in, in another area. So it's not evenly it's not evenly mixed or or placed. And that is from that uncontrolled cooldown rate because the molecules got very hot and they got hotter and they went and they separated. And now with this uncontrolled cooldown, they they basically it's almost like musical chairs. Once you take the heat away from it, it stops wherever it is. You took the music away and it stops. Now that uncontrolled cooldown rate basically impacts the strength of the metal with the workpiece because the molecular structure is no longer even. The molecules are not evenly dispersed in that workpiece. And that is what gives it weakness and causes it to crack, distort, and fail. And that's why our early example is the spring on the downforce spring on the planter snaps, right? Because that had an uncontrolled cooldown rate when it was formed and what it would basically do or weld it on a bracket, what have you, and it would have a weak spot so the molecular structure would not be even. So it's a lot like looking out at a frozen lake. You will have different colors of ice representing the thickness of the ice in that particular area. Microscopically, if you were to look at the grain structure of the metal, that you would have the same thing. So whenever you weld on something, put a torch to it, or anything that's going to generate heat, you will have this uncontrolled cooldown rate. Now, what we need to do is be able to get those molecules in a non-offensive way. We need to get those molecules to realign for that workpiece to remain stable. And that is what the metal axe machine does through subharmonic vibrational stress relief. Now, 
I'm going to stop here for a second and pause. Even though I had a metal axe, I loved it. It was fantastic. I sold it with my shop. I do not expect you to go and buy one. Right? What I am the purpose of this show is to understand thermal and mechanical stress and the damage it could cause on in your farm shop. Now, part B of this is that there are a lot of people that are listening to this that do have the wherewithal to invest in this piece of equipment and you have to decide that on your own it's probably around $25,000 on the last time I checked but it can be leased and or it could be a co-op thing where a couple of farmers buy or lease it together but please know that this is I'm using this because it's the only machine of its type in the world so I'm representing the theory of stress residual stress being harbored in metals in every part that's on your tractor car shop refrigerator washing machine what have you and for you to understand this and there's no expectation on my part of you going and buying a unit but as I said, there are some of you that are in are blessed in that financial situation and have enough equipment in your farm shop that you would find value in spending a few hundred dollars a month on a lease to stress relieve the different materials and, and equipment in your shop. And I'll get to that near the end. Alrighty. So now we have to go and we have to realign this these these molecules. Now people think of other machining procedures or manufacturing procedures. So now let's say that you have a drill press and you're going to drill a uh, piece of eighth inch flat steel to make a bracket. All right. So you put on the drill press, you drill a pilot hole, and you go in with your bigger hole and you make your bracket for whatever it may be. Now at that particular point, a procedure such as drilling, cutting with a bandsaw, or what have you, actually induces two types of stress. It induces a mechanical stress because what's happening is that you are tearing the metal away with the drill bit or with the band source, so you are tearing the metal away with that, and then the drilling procedure or cutting procedure induces a uncontrolled cool-down as that blade or that drill goes through that piece of metal. So at that particular point, you have a workpiece that that is harboring mechanical stress from the procedure and thermal stress from the uh, from the heat uncontrolled cool down right now I'm going to introduce another term to you and that is called heat affected zone and it's abbreviated HAZ like has heat affected zone so when you are working and at this particular talk about welding when you are welding and you have some discoloration of the metal and you have from from actually where the weld is you will have the highest thermal change right there and as you go out into the workpiece that you will have a thermal change but a lesser degree the heat affected zone is where the most heat from that procedure that welding procedure that cutting procedure drilling procedure is um, is located so that's what's called the HAZ. So if you look at some welds, you'll get you'll blue the metal. All right. If you guys are into motorcycles and you have chrome pipes coming out of the cylinder head, right, you'll see lots of times that the first six or eight inches are discolored on that pipe because that's the hottest area. So we would call that 
in a different way the heat affected zone but as far as a weldment is concerned or thermal stress is concerned we have to identify the heat affected zone so the heat affected zone is where you're going to have the greatest ripple effect like throwing a stone into a lake with a stone impacts you're going to have the most disturbance of the water and then as the as that impact goes out from that rock hitting the water that is like the heat affected zone it's going to become less and less so the heat affected zone is there so what's going to happen is that if you are working on a piece of metal or let's say you're going to bend this piece of metal to put a bow in it so you're heating it with a torch and then you're trying to form it all right trying to form it to put a bow into it is that you then again you will have two stresses induced you will have the mechanical stress of the reshaping of it and you will have the heat affected zone or the therm and the thermal stress induced where you heated it and then it had the uncontrolled cool down rate okay so keep that in mind but the thing that I want you to understand and if you were to talk to someone who is a metallurgist is that thermal stress is more destructive than mechanical stress in almost every instance and you probably do not have anything in your shop in your life or in your bedroom that is made of metal that is not harboring stress and it could be thermal and or mechanical but the thermal stress is the one that's going to actually create more have has a propensity to degrade that piece and create more distortion cracking and failure so now how how do we want to or how can we get rid of this stress now this is basically the patented system that Bonal Technologies has, which is the metal axe machine, and they're the only ones that I'm aware of that have this type of theory. And what it's called is subharmonic vibrational stress relief. Now, a little backstory here is that uh, the the uh, the company Bonal Technologies it was started by the gentleman, these the two brothers are on today, and, and and their father started it, and it was a, it came out of the war effort of World War Two. What had happened was that for many years it's been found that if you vibrate a piece of metal, that it will eliminate the thermal stress, and what it will do is that it'll by vibration it'll realign the molecules, and just around the wartime or after the war the theory just like we have it we used to go used to have a theory of plowing and disking a field and now we have a theory of we're not touching the soil structure we're going to no-till is that the theory changed because we learned more and so back in the old days they would vibrate a piece of metal that would be akin to plowing and disking and you know, fall plowing spring plowing plowing cultivating in the in the field all right turning the soil over and they would vibrate the metal at its harmonic peak and what the harmonic peak means is that it has the the molecules are all excited so think of a puppy dog right when he sees you he's all excited not only is his tail wagging but his whole body is is wagging his body is shaking going back and forth and his head is going and his everything is going his belly is going along with his tail so that would be their harmonic peak so it's the level of the most excitation of the molecular structure and that is because we want to take it like a salt shaker and shake it and then let everything fall back into its proper place the whole problem was that 
when they did it that way back in the World War II, post-World War II era, they did not have success 100% of the time. They had success sometimes, and then they had actually a negative effect where they actually weakened or distorted the workpiece. So just like akin to saying, well, hey, we need to recognize soil structure and organic matter in soil and not plow it and expose it to the excess oxygen and burn off the carbon and the organic matter is that they realized that this was not working all the time. And that kind of gave vibrational, not subharmonic, vibrational stress relief a bad name. And then what did they do to relieve stress relieve the metal? They would do a heat treat procedure and on a heat treat procedure based upon the metallurgy of the workpiece they would heat the metal up to a certain temperature and what the purpose of heating it is concerned would be to get the molecules all excited the puppy dog is all wagging its tail and shaking and then they would they would control the cool down rate so most heat treating procedures bring the, the, the metal up and then control at a very slow rate, bring it down, so the molecular structure basically equalizes. Now, the problem with heat treating is that you can't put a planter in a heat treat oven, all right, or furnace, actually. Uh, an oven only gets up to, to uh, 900 degrees. Anything more than 900 degrees is considered a furnace. So you can't put a planter in there. You can't put a complete engine in there. But through subharmonic vibration, you can stress relieve your entire planter, your tractor, your combine, your hydraulic pump, whatever. Right? And hopefully I'll have time to, to get a little bit more about that before the end of the show. Now, the converse of heat treating is cryogenic processing. And uh, there is something called absolute zero. And forgive me, I should have looked it back up from engineering school. I remember, I think it's minus 454 degrees or something, uh, F. And basically what absolute zero means is there's no molecular movement whatsoever. The molecules, if you were to look at something, let's say you hold a ratchet wrench in your hand. And, you know, you say, this cotton farm is nuts. There's nothing moving. I'm holding a ratchet wrench in my hand. I don't feel anything. But if you were to look with a very high-powered microscope, the the molecules are actually moving around in that metal, in that steel, in that chrome, whatever it may be. And the thing is that, so they are moving. So just like if you, you, you could grab a handful of soil and you say, well, I don't see any fungi or I don't see this or I don't see that, doesn't mean it's not there. Hey, you know, we breathe air. We don't see it either. So... The molecules in metal are always moving around, and cryogenics is the mirror image, the exact opposite of heat treating. What they do is that they take the workpiece and they bring it down to just about absolute zero, and what absolute to such a cold temperature that there's no molecular movement whatsoever. So they basically tell them by this cold, cold temperature, the molecules stop moving inside this metal. And then what they do is, instead of having a controlled cool-down, they have a controlled warm-up. And this warm-up procedure, as the molecules start to wake up, they come and they start to find their proper place and they equalize. So in essence, there's three different ways to stress relief. You could stress relief through vibration. You could stress relief through heat and controlled cool-down. Or the polar opposite, you could stress relief through deep freezing 
uh, absolute zero, no molecular movement, and then warm it up slowly to get the molecules to align. Now, the, the vibra subharmonic vibrational stress relief procedure that I'm talking about on the show today can only eliminate thermal stress, has no impact on mechanical stress, whereas a specified heat treating procedure and or a cryogenic procedure can eliminate both thermal stress and mechanical stress but there is no way for you to truly quantify that that happened. You can't put a number on it and say, yes, it was stress relieved. But the subharmonic vibrational stress relief system allows you to actually confirm removal of the residual thermal stress, but again has no impact on mechanical stress, but 95 or 99% the majority of the failures in a piece of metal are from thermal stress, not mechanical stress. And because this unit works through vibration, is that you could actually set it up. It uses what's called a forced inducer, which is basically an electric motor with a very highly controlled eccentrics in it. And that's what this control console does that I saw at the PRI show. And it induces a frequency of vibration. All right, so now what basically happens is that to just go back for a second world war ii vibration and we're vibrating at the harmonic peak the puppy dog is all excited sometimes it works sometimes it didn't work all right uh the founder of of bonal technologies george hebel who was the father he wanted to study this and he was an engineer and he had a very big job shop in Michigan that serviced the auto industry, what have you, for mold styles as far as uh, different procedures. They had a planer mill, what have you. But the thing is that he realized, he said, hey, sometimes we have success, sometimes we don't. We have to identify why we don't have success and identify the times that we have success. So he went on a quest, and that's when, when he came out with the theory, which is still proven today by the fact that NASA demanded that it's done on the Galileo space probe, is that he said he discovered that you need to basically induce a frequency. A frequency is a vibration, a harmonic vibration, a vibration at a rate in the lower one-third of the harmonic curve. So let's go back to the puppy dog, right? You may go and say, all right, fine. If I'm scratching a puppy dog's ear and I'm rubbing his belly and I got my wife there and she's, she's, she's patting him on the head, that's when he gets all excited and everything starts to move. That's the harmonic peak. So what was found is that if you find the harmonic peak and it's going to be represented, the metric used is, a, is, is hertz, a frequency hertz and then you induce a vibration in the lower one-third of the harmonic curve and this unit has a printer and it actually prints out a graph so you see where the peak is and then you'll be able to identify where the lower one-third of the harmonic curve so that would be akin to saying okay we did everything that a puppy dog we're rubbing his ears patting him on the head rubbing his belly and he's he's all excited everything is shaking right so now what we find out is that if we just rub his ears 
and pat him on the head. We're in the, we have he's he's happy and he's shaking, but not he's not at his at his peak frequency. And we induce that frequency into the workpiece that it actually removes the residual thermal stress that is being harbored. So this was the breakthrough. This was the breakthrough. So in other words, it would be akin to saying, well, hey, you know, years ago you had a double disc opener on a planter and you went into the field without a no-till coulter and you had marginal success. But once you put a no-till coulter on it to uh, fracture the soil, then the double disc uh, opener can cut the, the trench, the seed trench, the furrow, and it works well. So this is basically, in essence, what happened is that by inducing a frequency in the lower one-third of the harmonic curve that you are able to eliminate this thermal stress through vibration and then you could go back and you could check it because if once the stress is eliminated the harmonic peak when the puppy dog shakes the most right will change it usually has a low, slightly lower frequency or a slightly higher frequency and through this metal axe machine by Bonal Technologies on this console this is all red. It sounds very technical and for those of you that are listening, I know a lot of guys that are listening that are very very technical have a lot of background in, in, in metals and in engineering and working and a lot of farmers are involved with this and it's the actual theory is through Young's modulus of elasticity. Alright, but so if somebody wants to look at it, that's how the whole theory works. So in a nutshell, what we're basically doing is we're finding the harmonic peak, we're inducing a frequency in the lower one-third of the harmonic peak, and we're going to do that for about, depending upon the weight of the workpiece, you know, if it's five tons, it's going to take longer, if it's five pounds, it'll take less, then we'll probably come back within a half hour or an hour, and we'll do another scan and see where the harmonic peak is in that piece, particular workpiece, engine block, planter, sprayer, what have you, and then we will induce a frequency again in the, in the lower one-third that may change slightly because the harmonic peak changed, and then we will go back again, and when we have repeatability uh, twice, so like replication in a test plot, when we have repeatability, then we have... We have confirmed data that the residual thermal stress from that piece of metal is gone. That workpiece is gone. And what the unit consists of is a console and what's called a forced inducer. And that's the eccentric that causes the vibration. And then it has a sensor uh, to pick up what the vibration is. Now, most people do this on like a welding table. So if you had an engine block, you had something, whatever... A big piece that you could do that could fit on this welding table you could do it but the, the benefit and what's really excited about what I always got excited about this is that you could do a complete farm machine you could do a complete tillage piece of equipment you could do a complete sprayer so what would basically happen is that you could you could attach and I'm not going to say that at first it's a little bit difficult you may have to make up a bracket or something you could attach this forced inducer let's say that you have a, a planter all right you could attach this forced inducer to the planter lift the planter up and put it down on a rubber mat so it's isolated from the ground from the floor and then you put the uh the transducer on which registers the vibration and you do a scan with this metal axe machine and find out where the harmonic peak is for the planter 
uh, as one unit, and then you do the same thing. You induce this frequency, and you walk away. You may yeah, you say the plant weighs 6,000 pounds, so we're going to walk away for an hour, then we're going to come back and do a scan. It, it's, you don't babysit it. Once you said, then you do another scan and read the and read the harmonic peak, and then you go and once that stabilizes, is that you uh, have stress relieved that that piece. You could do it to a complete engine. And as an aside to this, that uh, Tom Hebel, one of the sons at Bonal, always stress relieves the engine when he buys a new car. And I actually did a project car back years ago and I went there with it brand new and I stress relieved it and you know this is going to sound like snake oil but it picked up three miles per gallon uh, from that so the take home message here as I as I start to close and go into the special delivery segment is that you need to recognize that whenever you whenever you weld cut or machine something you're inducing a thermal stress and depending upon the procedure you are also inducing a mechanical stress the thermal stress is the most um uh, has the most effect on the piece is of the most detriment and the mechanical stress is secondary right when something breaks unexpectedly it's probably had had harbored a residual thermal stress from its manufacturing process well uh, you know very 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 uh, i just thought of it because i usually when i teach this i think of it by lost my track here is that you know you have a warped brake rotor you have a warped brake rotor then that is because of residual thermal stress you hit the brakes you get you slam on the brakes the rotor gets real hot you hit a puddle of water it it uh splashes on it and you warp the rotor now if you have a guy who's overzealous with an impact gun and he tightens the lug so much and pulls it well that's a mechanical stress but every so when you have a warped rotor nine chances out of ten that the most of that warpage on a braking system i don't care what it's on is from a residual thermal stretch that was induced by an uncontrolled cool down rate now why i am excited about this for you the agricultural community is because number one now it's not a mystery why this is happening or why this is warping or why this is distorting or why this is cracking all right but the other thing is that like i said is that this technology is available to you in the farm shop with a, with an investment i'm not trying to sell you a machine that bonal i haven't spoken to them for a number of years they don't even know that i'm doing this show today but there's something for you to look into and you could so you invest in a you invest in a big piece of tillage equipment you invest in a tractor you invest in a sprayer a combine four hundred thousand dollars right is that you could actually stress relieve this whole machine and through that stress relieving process are you going to get an roi immediately no what you're going to get is an roi over time and then you look back and say man you know nothing ever broke on this machine or stuff you know it wears out after so many hours or this engine runs better or you know i know like a lot of guys have real uh rocky soil and they have tillage equipment and they go in there and they basically say you know hey i stress relieve these discs i stress relieve these these disc blades or these coulters or what have you and they don't wear out like they used to. I used to get so many acres out of them, and now I'm not getting. I'm getting three times more. We used to do valve springs on a race engine with a high lift cam, 700 inch lift, 7.700, almost three quarter inch lift cam. You would destroy valve springs in a couple of runs on a drag motor. You stress relieved those valve springs, they would go <laughs> 10 times as long, and they would still hold their pressure. So there are applications for this. As I said, the machine is quite costly. 
uh, but it is available on a lease, and it is also, but more importantly, I want you to know what's going on, and as a quick aside to this, is that when you, with the metal axe machine, what a lot of people do is use it as a weld conditioner, so they find that lower one-third of the harmonic curve, and they actually have induced this vibration. It's, this is not shaking all over the place, but you're not going to be able to weld. It's a very low-frequency vibration. But what it basically does, it's it's called weld conditioning, and that was one of the things that they use in industry. So when they're making a big mold, like for General Motors or Ford or what have you, or a big die, is that they'll use the metal axe machine in the weld conditioning mode, which is no different. You hook it up the same way, and you induce a frequency in the lower one-third of the harmonic curve, and you will find that you have better weld penetration, better weld quality, you will require less heat, and you'll have less, and it'll actually be stress-relieving it as you go away and create that heat-affected zone and move away from that heat-affected zone. So, you know, a lot of race cars' chassis are actually done with the weld conditioning with the metal axe. So, you know, this is an FYI. I wanted you to understand that. A quick recap. Two stresses, mechanical, thermal. Uh, uncontrolled cool-down rate is from a thermal stress. A mechanical stress is from reshaping. And the thing is that they are on everything that is in your shop. And if you are blessed with the opportunity to be able to look into having this technology in your shop, then you could go around and, and keep in mind that this is a one-time procedure. So if you stress-relieve your new planter or stress you leave your old planter or your tillage equipment or your sprayer it's not something you're going to have to go back it's not a consumable unless you did something to it welded on it cut, cut on it what have you is that once you eliminate that that residual thermal stress it without that uncontrolled cool down rate being evoked it's not coming back so I used to stress relieve my brake rotors, and a friend of mine used to road race, and he used to go through brake rotors. I would stress relieve them on the metal axe machine. The guy would never warp the brake rotors. So listen, uh, if you want to know more th about this, please contact me at Hot Rod Farmer at FarmMachineryDigest.com, and I could go over with you. But you could do a Google search, Bonal Technologies or Metal Axe, and it's worth it just to just to to understand that in a nutshell and uh it takes the mystery out of uh, why things happen so hopefully you enjoyed that i'm very excited about that that procedure and i uh when i had my unit i loved it and specifically proud that i was part of the american space program but now i'm going to bring you the special delivery segment and the special delivery today is not going to be a, a letter from someone uh, like on last week's show. We had um, some questions that were brought to me from the Firestone booth at Commodity Classic. But I do, I am on Twitter as the Hot Rod Farmer, and I did tweet out something about um, the other day about somebody was having I think, a dialogue, whatever they call it, a thread or something, about running a block heater on a diesel engine and I kind of uh, gave him a response that flew in the oint uh, flew flew in the face of everybody else and I got I got some feedback from it so I want to address that today uh, and as you know the special delivery is a gift to us from and is brought to you to us by Firestone Ag that's a company that was founded by Harvey Firestone a fourth generation farmer from Columbia and Ohio 
Harvey dreamed of putting rubber tires on farm tractors, and his innovative mindset is the core of Firestone Ag today, and lives on with their 23-degree tread bar and AD2 technology. The soil is the lifeblood of your farm, trusted only to Firestone, and I'm very excited to have learned at Commodity Classic that Firestone is now bringing that same mindset, that same thought process of excellence and, and servicing the farmer into the replacement track business. So if you have a track machine and you're looking for replacement tracks, uh, go on my website and you could connect right to Firestone and look what they have to offer. Alrighty, to get back to that quickly is that, you know, just like we farmed differently years ago in the confusion that, that I think was started on the Twitter or the Twitter, whatever you call it, feed, I don't even know, but uh, is that, you know, just like we used to plow, as I said before, and disc and do things and, and do things a certain way, and now we don't do that anymore, is that people have gotten to the mindset that you need to pl- run a block heater on a diesel engine in the wintertime, and they look at it because a diesel, the modern diesel is still called diesel and the old engine is still called diesel and they bring the same the same thought process to it back years ago you had engines that needed to had no glow plugs you had very very different chemistry in the oil a few shows back i spoke about oil and its ability to flow and what have you and and you used to use starting fluid and at that particular point people used to actually some farmers used to say used to drain the oil out of the engine at night and keep it in the house and put it on there and also they had a had weaker batteries uh you know regular batteries and they were running generators instead of alternators that's basically like you know planting how they planted crop in 1920 versus how we plant crop in 2020 completely different the end result is the seed goes in the ground but completely different and the thing that i wanted i guess i'm not saying it started an argument it wasn't an argument but the thing basically was is that people are taking a modern diesel and they're applying 1920 thought process with it and i'm not saying that you could never use a block heater i'm not saying that but keep in mind that it's a whole different game today that we have engines with glow plugs with quick start systems and if you could keep that fuel from not gelling so it's advertised properly you keep that fuel from not gelling and you can have a good cranking speed so in other words the batteries are good the starter is good the ground is good and if it's a fairly new tractor or vehicle and you know pickup truck whatever it may be that i'm sure that's all the case is that you do not need to plug that in now keep in mind is that the uh block heaters draw a lot of current and they cost a lot of money to run and and in essence what they're doing is they're trying to maintain the heat that is in that coolant so you don't want to if it's 10 degrees below zero if you plug a block heater and it come out an hour later the amount that you raise the temperature is really minimal but with and but also you are trying to move that coolant through the engine convectively by the heat going to the hot going to the cold there's no water pump circulating it so the thing i just want to establish and it's and i know a lot of people who tweeted me about it listen to this show and uh is that it's like planting 1910 style versus 2010 style it's a completely different ball game with today's modern engine oils with the glow plugs and the intake air heaters the cranking motors ability to turn the engine fast and uh, 
and just the whole dynamics of the engine design it's completely different the only thing we could say about it they're both compression ignition and but there is really no need for that if you want to do it that's fine you're not hurting anything you're only hurting your pocketbook but keep in mind also that there's going to be very little thermal transfer from that coolant to that oil and to the rest of that engine on a 20 degree below zero morning all right so don't have the false uh the false impression that you're heating this whole engine up because you're not and uh to me there's really no need to do that when detroit tests an engine and develops it they put it actually into a ice uh, a a cold room which is almost like a what is a freezer they could get the engine down to 20 below 30 below 40 below they don't have a block heater in it but the key that did remain the same is the idea of uh, not having the fuel gel and that remained the same and if you use a good additive and with a and you have a high cetane fuel because remember cetane is the fuel's eagerness to ignite and everything else is good and that you could start this diesel that sat outside at 20 or 30 below if everything is good and cranking batteries are good voltage is good and that'll start uh that'll start fine It'll start like a gasoline motor, or actually probably better than a gasoline motor because it has an internal heat source, the glow plug. So I just wanted to touch on that, and, and uh, I wasn't insulting anyone. You were correct years ago. It's not really applicable now, and I don't want you to spend a lot of money on electricity. I'd rather you have you running block heaters. I'd rather have you spend that money on fertilizer, fertility, crop inputs, better genetics, anything but waste and electricity. It's really not giving you anything. It's just an old wives' tale. But if you have older equipment, this what I just said does not apply. You have to do old school. So listen, thank you so much for listening. I, uh, I just am honored by all of you. And my whole goal is to support and prosper the American farmer and rancher and everybody in agriculture. And I just want you to know that the Hot Rod Farmer is pulling for you, the American farmer and rancher, and my beloved, beloved America. Next week's show is going to be a hot topic. Uh, what I think of autonomous tractors so and autonomous vehicles so uh get ready for it because uh there's a lot of buzz with autonomy and a lot of companies are spending a lot of money and i personally think that they're putting it down the old outhouse hole so listen you have a blessed week and hopefully you tune in next time thank you